We are continuing or picking up again this morning with our look at Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, picking up at verse 1 of chapter 8, which is where we left off in our last look at this letter a few weeks back. Now, verse 1 is actually part of a larger unit, as I believe. It runs through verse 4, but actually, given our time constraints this morning, we'll not likely make it much past verse 1, if at all. A friend of mine once said, we're shifting into Martin Lloyd-Jones gear this morning. If you don't know who that is, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British evangelical preacher who served at Westminster Chapel in England from 1939 for about 30 years. He was known for his uh, highly effective preaching, but also for his ability to go very slow and to take entire years sometimes to go through a single chapter of the Bible. Interestingly, Lloyd-Jones retired from his ministry after undergoing a major operation in 1968. And while he was in the midst of preaching through a series on the book of Romans. He had worked his way all the way through to Romans 14, 17, which talks about the joy of the Holy Spirit. And it was Lloyd-Jones' personal conviction that his health problems and subsequent operation was God's way of stopping him from preaching any further because he didn't know enough personally about the joy of the Holy Spirit. Fascinating to me. True story. At any rate, he was a very fine preacher, wrote one of the best things ever on preaching, and he knew how to go slow, and this morning we're going to shift into that gear before we go any further. Let's pray together. Great Father in heaven, please hear us now as we gather together around your word. Please take these truths, apply them to our minds and hearts, and use them to make us different people than the people we were when we walked in here this morning. Encourage us, challenge us, calm us, stir us up. Father, please do what you know is most needful for us right now. Please do all that your holy will requires of this moment. We entrust ourselves to you and your spirit's work. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, since it has been a few weeks since we looked at this letter, let me just say at the outset a few words by way of orientation. Uh, If you were to view this book of Romans as a whole, that is, if we were to kind of take the airplane up, so to speak, at 10,000 feet to get the big picture, what we see here is a letter that Paul wrote to introduce himself to a church that he had not planted. He hadn't had anything to do with the Roman church, really. He'd met some of the people but whose services he hoped to secure as a new base for his ongoing missionary operations and church planting efforts. And in pursuit of that, uh, in order to win the confidence and support of the Roman church, Paul has taken some time in this letter to assure them that he had a good resume, that in particular his theology was sound, he could be trusted. Accordingly, the bulk of this letter is devoted to Paul's simply outlining some of his core theological beliefs. And at the heart of Paul's theology is the cross of Jesus Christ, the place where God dealt with the universal sinfulness and brokenness of the human race. The sinfulness of humanity was and is universal, as Paul showed in Romans 5, because Adam was God's representative head for all people, so that when he fell into sin, we fell with him and made a mess for everyone. But God, by means of that very same representative principle, sent his son, Jesus, to take on human flesh and then imputed, that is, he charged to Jesus' account the sin of his people, every bit of it, 
And he poured out his wrath against that sin on Jesus. And so in and through the person of Jesus Christ, this great theological, metaphysical exchange took place, whereby even as Jesus was being credited with and punished for the sin of his people, God's people were being credited with Jesus' own right standing before God. And so just as all those who were in Adam fell into sin, all those who are in Christ who united to him by grace through faith, they're beneficiaries of all that he's done to secure forgiveness and redemption for his people. That's the core of Paul's teaching. That's the core of the, the doctrine in this letter. Well, after laying out those core teachings about the unrighteousness of humankind and the righteousness of God freely given, Paul went on to handle some objections that he'd experienced or anticipated or both as a result of the things he was saying. So, for example, in chapter 6, Paul dealt with the objection or fear that his strong teaching on the grace of God would actually cause people to presume upon the kindness of God and live as they please with no concern for godliness or holiness. In other words, the fear was that Paul's teaching was so grace-oriented it would lead to moral anarchy, which it didn't. But Paul thoroughly addressed that fear and that criticism in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, Paul dealt with the Christian's relationship to the law and questions that people had about that. And he showed how, in spite of what his accusers might have said about him, Paul actually valued and respected the law of God in itself, even while he clearly taught that the law was of no value whatsoever in making a person right with God. And in fact, he taught that in the hands of sin and because of the weakness of human flesh, the law actually became a tool to increase the culpability of people before God and even lead them further into sin. Indeed, the net effect of the law in the Christian's life, as we saw in our last study of Romans, was and is to set up and fuel a lifelong struggle within the believer who finds that because of the Spirit's work and presence within her heart has become the battleground between two competing desires. The desire to do what is right and good, which Paul calls the law of his mind, and the accompanying desire, because of indwelling sin, to do just the opposite, which Paul calls the law of sin that dwells in his members. And the reality of this ongoing battle is one that Paul knew only too well, even and especially he knew it as a mature Christian. And it's one that caused him from time to time to cry out as he did at the end of, the chapter, of chapter 7 when he said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's a, a regular experience, I think, I would submit for Paul. And then as quickly as he asked that question, it comes the immediate answer, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, through Jesus, has answered through Christ, God has delivered Paul from the lifelong struggle that on his own and merely by attempting to keep the law in his own power, he would have no hope of winning. And the cumulative impact of the things that Paul has been saying, indeed, of everything that has been said in Romans up to this point, causes Paul to finally assert with all the fullness of his apostolic authority that he can muster in 8.1, there is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of everything that has been said in this letter, I am telling you there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And that phrase is what we're picking up this morning as we move from chapter 7 into chapter 8, which is a very different chapter in tone and subject matter from the one preceding it. As Stott has pointed out, in chapter 7, the law and its synonyms were mentioned some 31 times, but the Holy Spirit only once. Whereas in the first 27 verses of chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is referred to 19 times by name. And so this chapter is indeed one that focuses largely, although not exclusively, on the work of God's Spirit and is a crucial part of Paul's ongoing theological summary slash resume. Because in talking about the indwelling Spirit of God, Paul is talking about what he sees as the goal, the point, the destination toward which God is taking all these people that he's credited with his righteousness. Where is he taking these people? What is the point of their justification? The point of their justification is their sanctification. That they become like Jesus. That being said, let's listen now to God's word. And even though we'll not make it past verse 1, I want to read the entire section uh, where it's found just to give you some context. Everything else I've said is flawed. This isn't. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, as we've already seen in the introductory remarks, Paul's declaration there, right? That statement that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that declaration has come initially as a consequence of all that Paul has been saying in this letter. It's a, it's a brief summary built upon a mountain load of prior evidence and argument. It's like if you can imagine a defense attorney who's worked for days or even weeks or even months to present all kinds of evidence and arguments and calling all kinds of witnesses in order to make a case to defend his client. And so he does that and at the end of all that and on the basis of everything that he's been saying for all these long months, the defense attorney finally turns to the jury and summing up everything he says, and so... On the basis of of all of that, I am asking you to find my client not guilty. That's what's happened here in Romans. Paul's declaration that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is the brief summary that has lots and lots of theological freight behind it. Indeed, everything he's been saying up to this point in the letter. But what does this verse mean? What is Paul saying here? What is he telling us? What does it mean to say that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Even further, what does it matter to say that? Well, returning to the imagery of the courtroom for a moment, a condemnation is a judgment. It's a conclusion, a sentence that's administered on the basis of a judicial finding. When Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 
What he's doing, basically, is giving us a glimpse in the present of what will surely be the outcome of a judicial proceeding that still lies somewhere in the future for every one of us. When Christ returns, he will return with his judicial robes on, so to speak. When he comes, he will come to judge the living and the dead, as we say all the time in the Apostles' Creed. But here's the beautiful, unbelievable, encouraging thing. Even though the trial, so to speak, is actually still somewhere in the future, God in his mercy has already assured us that the outcome of that trial, what that outcome is, and he has done so, and he can rightly do so, because the outcome has been secured by the life and death resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We, we live in a litigious age, a litigious culture. We live in a lawsuit, courtroom, crazy world. One result of this is that there are dozens and dozens of movies, probably hundreds over the years, that are built around a courtroom theme. There's a great movie that came out years ago, 12 Angry Men, and was remade not too long ago. It's all about that sort of thing. At any rate, there's any number of TV shows that weekly play out and are built around the drama of the courtroom. Our newspapers every single day carry reports of some ongoing trial that has gained a certain amount of notoriety, such as the Zimmerman trial that's going on right now. And the thing that creates the drama whether in a movie or real life, is that we don't know the outcome yet. The thing that creates the gut-churning tension, the angst, is not knowing how things are going to turn out in the end. But as God's people, we don't have that tension. We don't have that drama, that angst. That much has been settled. God has already told us what the verdict is going to be. You and I, on the day of judgment, will not be condemned. What a privilege that is. I mean, what a relief to know that. Not just know that, but to know that now. To know that today. I mean, think about this with me. If this verse is true, if there really is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then that sets a certain tone, doesn't it? It sets some parameters for how we should think about and interpret God's actions toward us as they come to us providentially in the course of our day-to-day lives. One writer puts it this way. What Paul is saying is that if you are in Christ Jesus, all of God's action toward you is and it ought to be seen as almighty mercy and omnipotent assurance and assistance. God's actions toward you are not mixed. It's not as though some days he's against you with wrath And those days are bad days, while other days he's for you with love, and those are good days. That is emphatically not the case. That is not the way to think about it. It may seem that way sometimes, it may feel that way, but that is precisely why we need the truth of God's revelation in his word. 
What God wants us to understand from Romans 8.1, when he, when he says through the Apostle Paul that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, is that all of God's condemning wrath, all of his omnipotent opposition against us in our sin has been entirely replaced by almighty mercy and omnipotent assistance. In Christ Jesus, God is always for you. He is always for you. This is where Paul's going in Romans 8. You get to the end of Romans 8, he gets there very explicitly. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who can be against us? Do you hear that writer saying? He's saying that God's actions toward us If we are in Christ, they are not punitive. They are never punitive. They are always parental. He is always omnipotently for us. How does that work out in our day-to-day life? Well, let's say, let's say you struggled with and are struggling with some particular sin. Imagine that. Or a set of sins. And it's a tough battle. It's an ugly battle. And sometimes it feels like you're losing more than you're winning. And I'd say that that applies Roughly 200% of the people in this room. And let's say that in the midst of that battle, you find yourself facing some personal challenges. Perhaps your health has started to go south. Worrisome things are happening to you. Perhaps you're facing more financial pressure and hardship than ever before. Perhaps you've been let go at work. Perhaps the raise you were counting on didn't come through. Perhaps you're having some severe relational struggles in your marriage, in your friendships, with your roommates, with your colleagues at work, in your family. Perhaps all kinds of things are going on in your life. And so knowing what's going on in your heart with your continued wrestling with indwelling sin and then looking at the things going on in your life and all around you, you start to put things together in your mind. And you begin to wonder what is going on. You begin to wonder, is God punishing me? Is all this that is going on in my life clear indication that God has turned away from me? Is this evidence that I've gone too far, that I'm truly now beyond hope and mercy and grace? Is all of this an indicator that I'm under the judgment and the condemnation of God? And what Romans 8.1 is saying to you and to me is this, that whatever we might conclude about what is going on in our lives, the one thing we cannot conclude is that we are under the condemning judgment of God. To put it more positively, the one thing we must conclude is that ultimately everything that God has allowed to come to pass in our life is coming from His kind, merciful disposition toward us that is committed to us, that is bringing to completion the good thing that was started within us. You may worry about a lot of things, but the one thing you should never worry about is whether or not we are under the condemnation of God. When I was a boy and I misbehaved, and I did that a lot, I got spanked a lot. And you always knew you were in trouble when Dad used your whole name and he told you to go and wait in the bathroom. And I spent a lot of time waiting in the bathroom for my dad to come. I can tell you those were some scary moments, waiting for him to show up. Sometimes he was angrier than others. 
Sometimes he spanked me harder than others. Here's the one thing I knew, alongside everything else. I knew that the person who walked through that door, my dad, whatever he did, he wasn't going to kill me. He wasn't going to beat me mercilessly. He wasn't going to be cruel and it wasn't going to last forever. And he would tell me at the end that he loved me. And he would mean it. I knew all those things and I was fortunate. I have had and do have a good father. But not everybody's had that. I realize that. I've known a number of people over the years whose experiences were very different. For those people, they never knew what was coming when Dad showed up. Some of those people were very nearly were killed. Some of them had guns put in their face, knives. They really never knew what to expect from their father, but that is emphatically not the case for God's people. Whatever God's responses toward us in this life are, they are always parental, not punitive if we are His. As a confirmation of this, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, 28-32 for a moment if you have a Bible. It's a familiar passage for many, but let me read it to you. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There's a ton of things in that passage, and there is a long and continuing, sadly, history of misinterpreting that passage, which I can't even go into this morning. But the one thing that I want you to notice is this. Paul is talking about certain misbehavior that was going on in Corinth surrounding the practice of the Lord's Supper. And one of the consequences of the sinful behavior of some of them apparently was that some of them were getting sick and weak, and even some had died, and these things were coming at the hand of God. Now, please understand, this passage is not saying that there's always a direct one-to-one correspondence between sickness and weakness and some sin in your life, such that every time you're sick, you must ask yourself, what sin have I committed that's resulted in this particular illness? Please don't hear me saying that. At the most, this passage is saying that there are times when God may respond to His people in that fashion, but I don't want you to dwell on that, at least not today. But the thing I do want you to notice about that passage is what Paul says at the end. He says that even when God's people are judged by the Lord, or disciplined by the Lord, the purpose, the intent of the judgment is precisely so that the person will not be condemned with the world. Did you catch Paul's language there? Why does Paul say that? Because of Romans 8.1. That's why Paul says that. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Might God discipline His people? Absolutely. But such discipline, if and when it comes, is parental. It is not punitive. It is restorative. It is reparative. It is transformational. It's all kinds of things, but the one thing it is not is this. It is not. It is not condemnation. It is always that which is motivated by God's love, 
by his kind and purposeful intentions to shape his people and to mold them and conform them to the image of his son. So whatever is going on in your life, whether God seems to, whatever God seems to be doing, whatever he is allowing to pass your way, however difficult it might be, you can say to yourself confidently, this is not the condemnation of God. I am not under the wrath of God. I am his child whom he loves, whom he has died for. And this, even this, whatever this is, is evidence of his ultimately loving and gracious and merciful intentions toward me. I've told you this story before, but uh, I think it's fitting and I'll tell you again. Um, during our time in Australia, I never watched American television. There was one series that caught my attention because it started while we were there, and I watched pretty much every episode. It was ER. Uh, I love that, that series. And uh, there was one episode in particular that sticks out with me, and there was a character in the show. I think her name was Jeannie. She was an African-American lady who was either a nurse or a respiratory therapist, or she did medical things to people in the show. And she contracts AIDS which she gets from her husband who's HIV positive. And she's, this whole episode, she's wrestling with that and she's struggling with that and she's upset and angry. And she's dealing with this one particular patient, this older man who sees what's going on and kind of knows her story a little bit. And, and, and in one moment in particular, she's in his presence and she's upset. She just kind of lets her personal life go a bit in there and she says, why is this happening to me? And the man says to her, it ever occur to you that maybe this is not happening to you? Maybe it's happening for you? If God is for us, who can be against us? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Absolutely none. Let's pray. Father, this is one of those verses that reads easy and believes hard. So, help us to do that. And help us to do it in the way that only you can, by your Spirit, getting past all of our objections, all of our hardness of heart and slowness of mind. Help us to live in the freedom of that knowledge, to live responsibly in that freedom. and to live missionally in that freedom. To be those that not only understand that we're under no condemnation, but to see that and use that as a catalyst to impel us into the lives of other people with that same message, same truth. who would be similarly changed if they could know that they too 
could have forgiveness and mercy. And they could live not under the judgment and wrath and condemnation of God. Help us to believe this truth and to not believe it selfishly. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. We'll take up an offering now for those who want to support the work of this church and various ministries through this church. One of those ministries you'll hear about in a few minutes. We have a Trevin Hoot, who's back from Bulgaria for a little bit. He's going to talk to us for a few minutes about what he's been doing there and tell us how we can be praying for him. Thank you.